0: This podcast is a project of the Medina Focus, with the goal of providing space for collaboration and community among practitioners to the Muslim diaspora in North America. As people around the world have immigrated to the West, many Christians have realized that they live and work in the midst of the nations, and they often feel alone and unprepared to communicate cross-culturally. If you are looking for conversation and community surrounding issues of loving Muslim friends in Jesus' name, we welcome you into the conversation.
1: Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Brian. We have a fun conversation lined up today, and that conversation is about Year One in Unlikely Places. So probably many of you on here can think back to what year one was like, or maybe you're currently in year one. And if you are, uh, this show is certainly for you. So our guest today is, uh, I'll introduce her more later, but uh, we met her at one of the conferences and uh, got to spend some time with her. And and she was, uh, I don't know if discouraged is the right word, but she was concerned that things weren't as they should be. And so for those of us who are a little bit further down the pipeline than her, we're able to share, you know what, this is exactly what our year one looked like. And so she's no longer in year one. I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say and what God has been doing uh, through her ministry uh, up there in the most unlikely of places, Alaska. That's probably not the place that we think of when we think of Muslim ministry. And so that was another surprising thing about our guest today. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I am here today talking with Marie. Marie uh, lives up in Anchorage, where she also grew up. Uh, She's worked as a piano teacher since college, except for two years, where she lived in Massachusetts as a living caregiver. And she's been back in Alaska since 2016. And she's been actively involved in ways, uh, reaching out to her Muslim community there, primarily working with refugees. And she's trying to make the shift from this being a part-time thing to her uh, full-time main work. So, Marie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. So, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing there in Alaska. I know when I met you in Florida, which is the opposite end from Alaska, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I heard where you were working, my first thought was, there are no Muslims in Alaska. What on earth is she doing in Alaska? So I think for you more than our regular guest, everyone is really curious. What are you doing in Alaska? Tell us about your work there.
2: So, yeah, as you mentioned, I grew up in Anchorage. And it's funny because I really was not aware of how diverse Anchorage was when I was growing up. Um, and up until when I moved out of Alaska in 2014, I probably had never met a Muslim um, in Anchorage. But during those, during those two years that I was gone, um, that's when, I mean, ISIS was hitting the news. That was heavy on my heart. The refugee crisis was really heavy on my heart. So when I moved back to Alaska in 16, I actually didn't know if I was move, moving back. Um, I was praying about going to Greece to work with refugees.
1: Okay.
2: Um, but some other stuff was going on with my family at that time that I realized I needed to be home. But yeah, so in my church, like, So, if refugees are on your heart, like, you know that we have a lot of refugees here in Anchorage, right? And I did not know that. Um, Mm. So, yeah, we have, um, we now have a a mosque um, that's been built in just the last few years. Um, Yeah, we have, um, like, one of our, our neighborhoods is actually the most diverse in the U.S. by some standards. I'm not sure how they calculate all that. Um, so yeah, refugees, and of course other um immigrant populations as well,
1: okay, so um, God had already put ministry to refugees on your heart, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then the location became alaska uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's an that's an interesting twist <laughs>
2: um and so, yeah, when I moved back. That, and once I decided, okay, I'm actually going to be here, I'm like, okay, let me see. Like, who, are the, who are the churches or the organizations that are ministering to refugees? And um, especially my, my heart was for, for Muslim refugees. Um, so, yeah, I kept looking and looking and, and couldn't find anyone. Um, so, yeah, started volunteering with Catholic Social Services, um, they, were, they were a refugee placement agency in Anchorage. And um, started frequenting uh, a Somali restaurant with my family. So it was just like, basically like, I'll just try anything. Um, but as that's developed in um, yeah, these last three years or so, um, yeah, now I'm spending a lot of time in a halal shop that my friend owns. Uh, that's that's where a lot of my friendships have have begun, actually through that halal shop. Um, and sometimes it's helping someone with homework. Like I've gotten a reputation as a geometry tutor, which cracks me up because these are concepts I don't even remember ever learning. So it's like <laughs> I'm trying to read the book a step ahead of you know the high school students I'm working with.
1: <laughs> wow. But
2: yeah, it's a it's a little bit little of this and a little of that. Um, but
1: Okay, so you're just uh, trying to 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 find the the places of need and and meet those needs. Mhm. Yes. Yeah. You know, a lot of this work is very pioneering and I I think for the rest of the country our image of Alaskans is that uh you know, you all are a pioneer people. Uh, but this is probably doubly true since you're doing diaspora work there and and in pioneering everything is very risky. So what what risks are you taking out there?
2: So one of the biggest risks that I feel, um, is like the fact that I'm still learning the, the cultural rules and, you know, I, I've, I can read books about general Muslim culture. I can read books about Somali culture, but there's nothing to quite prepare you to, when you walk into a situation to know this is exactly how I act in this situation, um, and that can vary from family to family. And some of the families have only been here for a few years. Other family, like um, some of the high school girls that I've gotten to know really well and helped tutor they were born here. Um, so um, as someone who is very much an introvert and I like, I hate going to social settings, where there's this mingling time and there aren't set rules for what you're supposed to be doing during that time.
1: Right.
2: It It's, it's just funny, like, um, yeah, now being in, in situations where I'm just having to try to pick up, okay, what does it seem like they're all doing here? What should I be, like, or to ask those questions, realize I might make some cultural faux pas. Um, I mean, like, one of the things, there's a woman that I've been helping, Uh, study for her citizenship test and so when i go to her house it's like okay how long and i didn't know her very well before we started this i'm like okay how long do we like linger over tea before i move into the studying is that even my job or is she she's the hostess is she the one who's supposed to decide when we start studying um and all those things that can feel uncomfortable but um yeah just learning Realize I'll make mistakes um, and learn as I go. Mm -hmm. I think the other, the other risk, um, I guess, on a very practical level, partly being a single woman, um, and partly being that all my all my friends that I've almost all of my Muslim friends uh, have come as refugees, and um, tend to be in the the lower income neighborhoods which are also the most crime-ridden neighborhoods. So having grown up here, there are certain neighborhoods that I know not to go to. (laughs) Right. And they are the exact neighborhoods I'm now spending a lot of time in. Um, And I remember when I first felt that God was calling me to minister here in my hometown, and specific neighborhoods came to mind. Like, what if God wants me to live there? And I I am looking to move into one of these neighborhoods now, well, after things get back to normal. And it was funny because I realized that that was scarier than the thought of moving to Iraq.
1: (laughs) That's funny. Um,
2: But realizing, okay, that's what Christ did. He came to the danger—it's not just that he died for us, but he came to live in a dangerous place, in a place of, like, um, I mean, yeah, thinking what he left and thinking what he came to. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, so I don't. He came yeah. to die, so that was so. something I had to deal with.
1: You know, you you yeah. mentioned that. I think that's a pretty common thing uh, throughout the country. I know in my city, that's certainly mm-hmm. true. Where one of the most crime ridden places is where we put the refugees, and I I feel that there's a deep sense of sadness about this because I know what they've come from. You know, so many of them are from Iraq, and so mm-hmm. I know they're they fled a war zone and. You know, they land in a a crime-ridden neighborhood in Houston. Um, I know that Mm -hmm. during the course of ministry, a lot of times we get started down a particular path, and I think the test that God is giving us is, will we obey? And then the task becomes larger or becomes different or deeper in some way. And So what are the unattended outcomes uh, or events that have come out of the work that you've been doing?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing how I will answer this a couple of years from now. Me too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think back to when, yeah, when I first met you um, and some, some others, yeah, back in Florida. And I was still very much waiting for, for God to send this leader. Like, the first two years that I was getting involved in Muslim outreach, it was like, okay, Lord, where where's this leader that you're going to raise up? I'm just kind of plugging along until I find this leader. Um, so I was kind of biding time when I was, like, volunteering at different places and stuff. Um, so I think one of the biggest, biggest changes that I've seen in how God is leading me, I guess, is um. And and yeah, and you and others were huge in this. I, mean, I just remember sitting at a restaurant and telling you, like, no, no, I'm not a leader. I'm only doing these things because no one else is doing them. Right. And I think it was you. I can't remember exactly. I think it was you who said, "Well, that's what makes you a leader,"
0: <laughs> which was
2: scary to hear. But I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, that the leader isn't the person who has it all together. Um. So I yeah I'm. As far as unintended outcomes, I never imagined that I would be sitting in a halal shop with, um, you know, next to a, a group of cab drivers who were there on their break and involving me in their conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, to be clear, I'm still very cautious and careful about my interactions um, with men, and I'm primarily at a halal shop to visit with my female friend. Um, but, um, yeah, there there are so many limitations, I guess, that I put on myself to begin with. There's just so much more opportunity than I thought there would be mm-hmm. for me as a single woman. Wow. Um,
1: I think one of the un- unintended consequences for you is going from that, hey, I'm looking for a leader, to realizing, oh, uh, that's me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that was certainly... You know, just hearing your story from from before. I think uh, you know when when I met you, it was in year one, and you were just facing a lot of very uh, distinct challenges, you know, trying to get churches on board and uh, mm-hmm. trying to get people to pray and participate. And I know a lot of people have those same kind of year one um, year one struggles. So I'd, I'd like to talk for a moment about what do you feel like are the greatest challenges for your ministry? And if you want to talk about year one, that's, I think that might be something of interest as mm. well, or if you want to talk about now, that's, that's fine also.
2: So, yeah, and some of that, of course, already referenced, yeah. but that, I guess that I, I easily get paralyzed by fear of doing something the wrong way. It's usually subconscious, but oftentimes it's like, okay, I'll, I would rather do nothing than potentially do something the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, you have to laugh like, what what if I accidentally share the gospel the wrong way, right? Right. Um, but yeah, part of that also, that first year especially, I mean, there were so many, so many dear brothers and sisters in Christ who would come alongside in encouraging ways and want to get involved. But the funny thing was God kept bringing military families. And I'd be sure, like, oh, this is great, but like they're only here for a, for a short time. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, when that first year especially, there was the challenge for my to realize that I can't wait until I have everything perfectly figured out to enter into ministry. Mm. And as far as wanting to bring other people along, yeah, I think especially when you're in that first year, when you're really excited and you realize that not everyone else is that excited about about this particular right. ministry. I had to really, or I should say, God had to really deal with a lot of, uh, was a judgmental attitude in my heart feel like there's something wrong with people who aren't as excited about this. Um, and so that's been a big growing experience, realizing like there are so many needs in this world, and God does lay different things on different people's hearts. And yes, there are some of my brothers and sisters in Christ that maybe there is a fear or, or even a hatred towards Muslims that absolutely needs to be dealt with, um, and God will do that in his time. But to focus more on praying for God to raise up those people and to invite people along if I had the opportunity, as opposed to trying to talk my friends into this.
1: Right. You, you mentioned that dealing with kind of your own self-doubt or self-fear or, or wanting to get things mm-hmm. right the first time, time—that uh, that's mm-hmm. a very common thing. Steve Moses, we had him on the show not too long ago, and he's on the East Coast, but he's mm-hmm. talking about in his city, everything's kind of competitive, whereas people have their model of how they want to do things. Now, there's a burden on them to sort of show proof of their work. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. so it, it creates, you know, competition and tribalism and all these really, really negative, uh, really negative things. And um, I heard somebody say the other day, he said, I like my way of sharing the gospel better than his way of not sharing the gospel. And I thought that's a really, <laughs> that's a really <laughs> great way of putting it. Um, I think for a lot of us, we're so focused on, on prep and getting it right the first time that we're not willing to step out there and take one of those risks. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but, but this highlights, you know, the idea that within any given city, um, or broader community, you know, there's a lot of disagreements about how do we do Muslim ministry? Um, you know, how do men and women interact? How contextual should we be? All of these different things. And then that creates a second layer of difficulty of how do we, who are on one side of any of these issues relate to people who are on the other side. So how do you sort out these disagreements for yourself?
2: Yeah, that is a really good question. I mean, it brings two thoughts to mind. And the first one, it kind of makes me smile. Um, When I realize that, simply put, I haven't been blessed with the problem (laughs) of having others right alongside me with whom I disagree. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I say that honestly, I mean, I realize, I mean, I realize that that is an issue that can be very difficult, but it is also a blessing, and it, it's a nice problem to have. <laughs> so, um, so so your advice would be, I,
1: if you're running into too much conflict, just keep pushing out until you get far enough away.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and praise God that there are so many people and that there are these different perspectives. Yeah, it's funny because I realize... In some ways, even though at times I felt alone here in Anchorage, I, I, I'm no okay. If and when God sends those other people, I'll 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 learn a new phase of humility and working through conflicts and all that. Yeah. Um, but as far as right now, I mean, I do have to sort it out. Maybe more from a distance as I you know read various books, talk mm-hmm. with people, you know, or even at, at some of the the gatherings that we've been at. So hearing those different perspectives and yeah, maybe some things I'm a little more uncomfortable with, I'm not quite sure, you know, I, I am still having to sort through that, and yeah, as someone who feels really safe with rules and boundaries and detailed step-by-step instructions, right? I do feel pressure to find out what the best way is, but I have to remember always rely on the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, something that stands out to me so much, one of the, the gatherings that my sister and I had hosted a couple of years ago, there was a um, a Muslim background believer who was sharing his testimony, and we had a Q and A Q&A session afterwards. And someone asked, "Well, what would you say is the best method or best strategy of of sharing the gospel with Muslims?" And I mean, it's the response. The main thing I remember from that evening, he said, "the the best strategy is to let go of strategies <laughs> and learn to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit."
0: Yeah.
2: So that has been huge for me to remember and to know that things are gonna i mean how god leads me in a conversation with one friend might be very different than how he leads me with another friend right or how he'll lead you with with the people you're ministering to depending on their needs i've noticed
1: that uh, a lot of people will come into our city with one strategy or method and be very uh, dogmatic slash evangelistic about their method and then several years in have dramatically modified it to be something completely different, which is not bad. I think adaptation is, Mm, mm -hmm. adaptation is really good. Um, How do you, so, uh, you know, you're, you're in Alaska, you're working with refugees. Um, I'm assuming you're going to some kind of regular Western style church as well. You're associated Mm -hmm. with ministry type people. These are a lot of different, Uh, a lot of different circles to walk in. And so how do you navigate your identity of who are you to these different groups?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's something I've been working through a lot, especially in this past year. So, okay, so I actually have to go back to, I think it was two years ago, I was having dinner with a couple of old college friends, one of whom is now a believer. The other one was raised going to a church church not not following Jesus. Uh, I don't know if he would call himself a, a Christian um, at this point. So we're just like catching up on life. hadn't seen um, hadn't seen the one friend in several years, and so I explained that since I moved back to Anchorage, I've been especially passionate about reaching out to refugees and wanting to bring Muslims and Christians together and help develop like bridges of friendship there. And these are friends I'd known really well in college. They all knew I was a follower of Jesus in college. I mean, we had spiritual conversations all the time. Um, but then when he asked me, he was like, so what's your what's your main goal or what's your end goal or something like that? And I was like, uh, what do you mean? He's like, well, I mean, if someone's passionate about something, there's there's an outcome they're wanting to see. So what would that be for you? And I kind of wrote, I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer this in a way that he'll like – like they won't offend him or they won't think it's weird. And I just kind of avoided, I somehow got out of directly answering the question. <laughs> and like, and I was so convicted about just, yeah, my cowardice. And like an hour later in the conversation, I was like, during the conversation, I kept praying about it. Like, Laura, give me another chance, please. So like an hour later, I was able to, to take it back to his question. And I just confess, I was like, I did not really answer your question. I, I do believe that we all have one creator I believe we all share the common problem of sin, and I believe we all have a common Redeemer who gave His life for us. Mm -hmm. It was so freeing to realize, like, who am I talking to? I'm talking to people who know me really well. So, you know that I love the Lord, and you know, I think you know that I want everyone I know, everyone I know and love, to know the hope and the peace that I have in Christ. Uh, whether they come from a Christian background or a Muslim background. So that was like the, my first experience in explaining to an unbeliever why I'm passionate about this mm-hmm. and realizing I should be able to explain to anyone and, in fact, should be able to share the gospel in, in doing so. So, yeah, as far as my, my Muslim friends, they know from the get-go that I'm a follower of Jesus. It's interesting to hear how I'm described by them to to each other. <laughs> I'm I'm Christian Kia, apparently, to some of them. And I mean, I usually tell them I'm a follower of Jesus, but they know me well enough to know, that, yeah, as a, as a Christian, this is not just what they might think of as like American Christianity. I had another interesting conversation just this past year, or past few months, when I was talking with a very close friend, explaining that I will be making a shift in my work. And I've been praying about this a lot. My sister had had raised the question, like, okay, you've been involved with, like, these people's lives for a few years now when you've been on your own. So in that way, you, there's that credibility there. They know that these aren't, like, false motives or whatever. Mm-hmm. But once you make a shift to where you're being supported, if they were to find that out later, would they feel betrayed, like, right. you're getting paid to talk to them type thing? Right. So I've been praying about that a lot. How do I be upfront and avoid any any sense of betrayal or deception later? So, as I was talking with um, this woman, I'll call her Zahara, but she's got my closest Somali friend. And so when I told her, yeah, I'm going to be making this this shift, and that was actually my first time telling her. Like I I started praying for the Somali people when I moved back to Anchorage when I found out we had Somali refugees here. And that's why I was so excited to get to know you and some of these other ladies. I told her that I have people in my church and other people who love Jesus, who, who know how I've been involved in this and that they're actually going to start financially support me so that I can work less in teaching piano and have more time doing whether it's tutoring or, Or whatever but then also explain to her like ever since i was in my teens i have loved helping the people get to know god more in in reading the bible that's been a passion of mine whether it's someone who comes who has grown up in a, a christian home or whether it's someone who doesn't even believe in god right now so i wanted to make that clear to her that it's well and i realized like this is the most i this is such a an accurate way of explaining what's really happening that um, other followers of Jesus are are going to help support me,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: So that I'm, so that my time is freed up. That it's not about an organization yeah. that's like paying me the salary. It, it is actual individual people who also love Jesus.
1: Yeah. So you you mentioned wanting to make the transition from. Uh, it sounds like you're supporting yourself with piano teaching and and doing this mm-hmm. uh, in between all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And now you're wanting to do this full time, um, with it sounds like not a whole lot of people there to help you. What, uh, how do you maintain a healthy work-life balance in all of this?
2: Yeah, this this whole like stay-at-home orders with with COVID-19 has been very interesting uh, for kind of taking a step back and deciding how to do things differently once I can get out of the home again. Yeah, thinking back to my schedule this last fall, I mean, being a single woman, I have a lot of freedom in my schedule. I could help with um, a perspectives class on Monday, Tuesday evening after teaching, I typically go to the halal shop until they close. Uh, Wednesday evening, help a um, a young Somali friend with her homework. Thursday evening, had ESL. Sometimes went again to the halal shop on Friday. I mean, that was my regular schedule. It was very unusual for me to, like, eat dinner at home. When I realized that um, a family night or an invitation to some fellowship or prayer gathering was starting to feel like like that was, I hate to say burden, but sometimes it felt like that or like mm-hmm. that's infringing on my ministry time, then I realized, okay, I'm, I'm getting out of balance. Like, yeah, it's great that I have this freedom where I can spend my evenings Right. Doing these doing different things. But um, just, be- it's so funny, it was just before before we got our stay-at-home orders that God had, was starting to really heavily lay on my heart this idea of community, the need to have truly community of believers. Like, I'm very close with my church, but, and we have lunch afterwards, and so I feel like that gives a pretty good sense of community, pretty good community on a large scale, but I don't have a small group of believers that I'm with regularly that I can invite someone into. So as I realized that in spending my evenings away, I mean, not to say it was bad, but I realized that, yeah, if I don't have time to actually be involved with a community of believers, then I am in danger of communicating to my Muslim friends that, that following Jesus is a solo run. Right. And that that's what they would be in for if they decide to follow him.
1: Yeah, that's a dangerous thing to communicate.
2: So I am really praying through that, how to how to reshape my schedule in this new season, giving more priority to that small group, Christian community, not only for my own sake, spiritually, but so that I can then invite my other friends into that, that I have something to invite them into.
1: Mm-hmm. So for many people... Uh these conversations we have are fairly theoretical and mm-hmm. I know that you're you're relatively new to this, but is there any story you could share that would help kind of encapsulate uh, something you've been doing or have done or uh, a joy you've experienced in ministry?
2: Yeah, the story that I want to share really goes back to that first year. And so I'm thinking right now, especially for anyone who is starting out and maybe feeling like no progress is being made, you're never going to get there yeah when I first that first year found out we had a Somali restaurant in in Anchorage and so my sister another family from church um, we started frequenting there and so we go once maybe sometimes twice a month and I had like all these grand dreams of like I mean I think it was like August or September that we started going there I was like I want to be cool if I like November, we know them well enough that we can invite them over for Thanksgiving, and we'll have our house full of Somali people. And I'm just like, just imagining all these grand things. Um, several months later, we're still frequenting the the restaurant, and I'm just praying, like, Lord, are we wasting our time? For me, I mean, there's there are no women here, so there's no one for me to get to know. The men don't speak much English, so even the men in our group who are there, like, they're not able, they're not having much of a conversation I'm mean, trying but so meanwhile I'm still like trying to find other other ways but yeah it was we've been going there for almost a year when I decided to try to make a Somali meal so in looking up ingredients and trying to figure out where I, to get them that's when I found out that there was a Somali halal market right around the corner from the restaurant but I'd never noticed it so I walk in there I had no idea that it was owned by the same family who owned the restaurant and had no idea that the, the wife of the, of the owner of the restaurant, that the wife, um, who was running the shop also cooked at the restaurant. So for this past year, she had often seen me as she was in the kitchen, she could see out to the front. So she'd been seeing me come in, but anyway, so yeah, I had no idea. I didn't know who she was. She asked me if I would tutor her daughter, uh, first time I meet her, and um, actually face-to-face. That started off this friendship of being in the whole market once a week, where I would tutor her daughter and gradually get to know other women. Oh, another. so another thought that had been through, going through my mind when we were going to that restaurant, I thought it was this new restaurant, and I was like, oh, wouldn't it, like, as I invite my other friends to come into the restaurant, like be so great to like if the restaurant's just starting out, you know, we need to like keep it going, make sure they're getting business. So when I later found out that the restaurant had been going for eight years, I felt a little silly thinking like, oh, we're gonna like <laughs> boost this. Anyway, so so yeah, we've been going to the restaurant for a year and then the following year was in the halal shop, uh, tutoring their daughter. Well then they were getting ready to they moved to Oregon rather suddenly. I think that was probably just before I met you, I think. And the week before they left, she and I were having dinner together. So she sold a restaurant to an Ethiopian couple. So we walk over there to have, have dinner in what had been her restaurant. And she introduces me to the, to the owner, the new owner, the Ethiopian man, and she explained, and she's telling him these things that I did not know, that I had never known before. So yeah, Kia would bring her family into her restaurant. like um, we were going through a tough time because my son had offended some of the Somali community, so people were not really coming anymore. Oh, wow. And then Kia started coming, and Kia's, and she brought her family, and she has a big family. <laughs> and I'm sitting there just in awe. And one of the things that was making me chuckle is that my sister and I suppose my mom were the only family members that ever came. But I was inviting my family and the Lord
1: mm-hmm.
2: all the time. And I was like, it's true. Like, I do have a big family. And knowing like, how, that was, um, how that was a blessing to her. But that first year, I mean, I really thought there was nothing, nothing coming from that at all. I had no idea that that was building, I mean, building a reputation of sorts for her so that a year later she would invite me to, into her daughter's life in that way. But then even after that, so two years in, at that point when they moved, and I felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me, it was, yeah, it went through several months without, without really seeing any of, I think, any Somali friends. And decided to go back in to the halal shop because I knew I knew their friend who had bought it from them. But yeah, they had they had sold the shop to this friend of theirs that I'd met once. Thought we were hitting off well, and then after that, just seemed like she avoided me. So I'm like, oh, I I really don't think she likes me. Like nothing's. I mean, I thought it had gone through my like, not a person of peace for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, but I don't know anyone else, so I'll go back into the hall, hall shop and try to strike up a conversation with her. Well, we had, like, a two-hour conversation. I found out that the reason that she had started avoiding me was because she had shared with us that she was pregnant, but no one in the community knew. Oh. So from then on, she always avoided us in a group so that we wouldn't ask her about it. <laughs> 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 um, so we're just laughing over that, yeah, that for the past year, I thought she didn't like us. And she is now my closest friend
1: mm.
2: in the Somali community. But I just look back. I mean, all, the, all of the relationships that I have right now came out, of, came out of that family who owned a restaurant in a halal shop. Mm. And that for that first year, I saw zero Zero fruit, zero relationship being built.
1: Wow. So what do you think that other practitioners should know that you've discovered in your time?
2: I guess to take the things that feel like they're limitations and commit those to the Lord and seek to have Him bless them. Hmm. Being a single woman, I thought would limit me quite a bit i like, I'll be honest, four years, like, I'd never really, I hadn't really struggled with being single, but four years ago, just as a very practical matter, I was like, Lord, if you want me to do this, like, I I think you'll need to send me a husband, because I don't, with all the cultural things, I don't think I can do this as a single woman. And I have seen just over and over and over again how God has used my singleness, not not just in the schedule, not just that I have a freer schedule. But how I, I'm able to minister to women—I mean, there are so many of the women I know have been abandoned by their husbands, mm-hmm. or are virtually single, like they're technically still married. But so that has not been a hindrance at all. And even how the Lord has used brokenness in my family. Um, so my my dad left my mom right before I moved back to Alaska, and that was my reason for deciding I better stay in Alaska. And I remember thinking, like, my parents were so hospitable when I was growing up. Like, they practiced hospitality like like few people I know. And I just was so mourning the fact that my dad wasn't here now for my parents to, like, come into this ministry with me. Mm. But God used even that when I had a, a woman come over for dinner, meeting my family for the first time. And I didn't know much about her story. I knew that she had two daughters. And when someone asked her something about her husband, she gave this kind of vague answer. But after dinner, we're doing dishes. And she asked me, like, you have such a beautiful family. Your mom is so beautiful. Your sister is so beautiful. But where is your dad? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And when I explained that my parents were separated and told her, and it, it is really hard because I mean he taught us to read the Bible and to follow Jesus and this is what Jesus said about marriage and divorce and that gave that did two things it allowed her to open up about her own brokenness mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think she would have before but then it also opened a door to share um about about Jesus who he is from both the Old Testament and the New Testament and then, so just yeah just a snapshot there but just over and over again I've, the things that I thought would hinder ministry God is able to use um, to further further our ability to, to meet people and identify with them.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, a, a number of people who have shared on this show have mentioned something about that, of having some sense of, I, I feel like I'm supposed to have it together because this is who God's called me mm-hmm. to be, and I can't let them see, oops, they just saw. But in seeing, they also see, our humanity and they see what Jesus has actually done for us in the midst of this brokenness. Like pr- pretending that we don't have brokenness doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be very human because that is the right. human experience is to be broken in some way and everyone mm-hmm. of any, you know, ethnicity, language, nationality, political ideology, religious ideology, that we all know this. And when we pretend like we don't have anything that that alienates us from people. Um, so I think that's that's really good. Um, If God were to answer one prayer request with a yes, what would you ask for?
2: To see um, see not just an individual, a whole Somali family come to know him. I would just love—I mean, I'm thinking of one family in particular, but I would love to see a husband and wife know Christ and follow him together to lead their children— and then to be filled with a desire to take the gospel
1: to their people. Well, that's a good prayer. Marie, uh, that's about all of our time today, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very encouraged to hear where things are at now a couple years in from where I knew you a year or so ago, and I'm looking forward to hearing a couple years from now uh, how are things going. So I really appreciate your time.
2: Uh, Thanks so much, Brian, and thanks for your encouragement over the years.
1: Yes, you bet. Well, that's all of our time today. We hope this show has been helpful for you. We hope you will join us again in the future. If you know someone that is in year one of Muslim ministry or diaspora ministry of any kind, uh, we hope that you will share this podcast with them because I believe that some of these lessons learned today and through some of our other guests uh, can be helpful for them and encourage them as they go along their way. Hope you'll join us next time.
0: You've been listening to the Medina Podcast. This show is hosted by Brian Bear and produced by Nate Schultz. The conversations we have on this program are born out of an expanding environment of collaboration among grassroots ministry practitioners across the North American continent. If you would like to engage on a deeper level, please email us at medinafocus at vision59.com.